Welcome to another episode of Dirty Pinko Call Me. I'm your host, Samantha Gevgian Clark. Um, today's episode is a little bit unusual. For one thing, it is an hour and a half long. It's extremely long for an episode for me. Um, and it is also, uh, it was recorded by my guest, who is Joel Campbell of the Michigan Robin podcast. Um, he's on with me to talk about eco-socialism and religion and um basically how to prepare our our hearts and minds and souls and spirits for the coming devastation of climate change um, and how to also fight back um, and what survival looks like. And um, one thing that we did that was kind of interesting was we started recording while we were still talking leading up and then at a certain point decided that that should just be, we should just be doing the episode. So that's kind of um, unusual and it's very casual in that way. The audio is also not amazing. Thankfully, he talks most of the time and his audio is clean, which is why I used his recording and not mine. But my voice is a little bit muddled at times and I apologize for that. Hopefully it doesn't distract too much from the overall episode. I think I managed to edit it into a decency. Um, then another thing that's unusual about it is that this is only the first part of what's essentially a two-part episode. And the, the second part is on his podcast, which should be airing a day or two after this one. Um, so I highly recommend once you've finished here, going to check out the Michigan uh, Robin podcast and following them, first of all, and subscribing, and, um, but then also checking out the second, the second part of this episode, which is where um, he's more interviewing me, and that's about um, witchcraft and spirituality and the way that that comes out in our work as well. I, I think that what we did here was something really cool and we, we got to some really important and interesting points. And if you have the time, I recommend kind of slogging your way through this hour and a half and then slogging your way through the next hour and a half on, on his show as well. So that's the intro, just kind of given some disclaimers. Also, the poetry segment is at the end of this episode. So if you're looking for that and then you're curious, check that out. And I also um, mention all of my $5 or more patrons at the end. So hope you enjoy. I always hate doing introductions because it always makes it feel more formal than I want it to be. Because <laughs> I don't. I'm so atrocious at actual formal interviews. The only ones I was ever trained for were written. <laughs> oh, yeah, same. Yeah, I would so, do uh, transcripts. Yeah, yeah, no, I hate. I can't. <laughs> I tried for like the. like I. I did a little podcast before this that was about like internationalism and I would always do the very formal introductions and I was always just, I don't know, it puts up this very uh, weird barrier between you and the other person. Like, yeah. I don't know, but I was thinking I have had, <laughs> okay, because I don't know how else to, uh, to make this topic, um, lighthearted so <laughs> um you know what a cephalopod is the yeah I, di I didn't know what they were actually called until until recently the okay so apparently there is an they're as intelligent as human beings um but they don't pass on generational knowledge like human beings and other animals which is like the only reason that they haven't ever 
gotten around to creating a civilization, right? Okay, so there's that component. The other part, and this is the truly, this is diving into eco-socialism. The other thing is that they like warmer waters, so the heating of the oceans is actually creating better conditions for them. And I don't, like, I know it's a bit of a leap, but, like, what if, <laughs> what if we awaken the old ones <laughs> like from, yeah, from, like, the Marianas Trench because of climate change, and then cephalopods are are our overlords for, like, the next millennium. So that's, yeah. <laughs> this, this is my, I'm, I'm not, uh, yeah, I, I have. Are we the dinosaurs for the cephalopods? Like having to die out so that they can like take over. Yeah, right. Like, are we that for the cephalopods? Yeah. <laughs> this has become the uh, the way that we've been getting around the despair <laughs> in all of our conversations. Yeah. It's funny because one time I was really high with my ex and his best friend, and we were ta- we were joking that like there was some secret war between the squids and the octopi, and <laughs> we're just their pawns. I you don't know, know where that came from, but it's it's deep inside everyone. They kind of know, right? Like yeah. the tentacle overlords are coming for us all. <laughs> so that's yeah, that's how I got into eco socialism was <laughs> to the yeah. Um yeah. I don't I don't even know where the thought came from. I it was like two incongruous thoughts and then yeah, I think I got stoned or really drunk. And was just having this. I I keep seeing people posting about the despair thing with like increasing frequency, and um, it's not doing me any favors. Yeah, I w- I wouldn't say yeah I'm annoyed by the by it, but I just kind of want to shake them a little, just gently, just like reassure them that. It is shitty. <laughs> no one's denying that. But at the same time, I don't know. I have a very... I don't, I don't know. Because, like, right, if we hit 1.5, that's that's bad. <laughs> but yeah. Paris is set at 2, and human mass extinction happens at 4. So we got some, like, leeway, <laughs> like, which I'm not advocating for. But I keep having this, like... This, I have these like two dreams that I keep having, um, and one is essentially like to keep it at one point five would be essentially to preserve civilization more or less as we know it, more or less, uh, <laughs> which would be nice, um, you know, more or less. But by the time you get to like two degrees, that's when like society starts to break down. But wouldn't that be like a, a net positive for carbon neutrality? Like, in a really sick way. I know. It's... <laughs> no, I know. It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, it starts killing off some of the more vulnerable people in the world. Like, that's not good. <laughs> I, it's not something you would for. Right. Not even so much that as much as, like, if, like, the shipping and the extraction and production of fossil fuels, like, if those systems broke down. Because that's, like, what, 71% of all emissions are from extractive or from 100 companies then like half of all emissions are from extractive industries like what if you know societal collapse and i don't know it's it's a twisted thought i think 
it's like just buried in my subconscious when I fall asleep trying to find, I don't know, trying to find a way out that <laughs> prevents the cephalopod overlords from taking over. Um, <laughs> Maybe we should, because I, I did start recording a while yeah. ago, just like and everything. Maybe we should just talk about ecosocialism first. Yeah, instead of cephalopod overlords. It probably would be easier. I that on there. It'd be kind of funny. Like, I, can... <laughs> I, I think I do have it, but we'll see. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, we can just talk about eco-socialism. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> I'm starting to like slowly get to the point with it where I don't understand any other kind of socialism. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like everything should just be filtered through it, right? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> everything else is like outdated in its way right like yeah (laughs) like how could it be anything else right like this is it's created this weird tension i think inside at least our chapter where it's like because everything can be tied back to eco-socialism that like everything can be an eco-socialist issue so like we're working on housing because i mean in michigan between residential housing and transit Uh, combined that's half of all our carbon emissions so like taking on housing would be a really nice vector because i always feel like if you go after the cars first people panic (laughs) but if you if you like (laughs) angle housing because like things like denser housing like affordable housing (laughs) um and things like that like it it starts to make people reimagine the city as a place to live than to just like drive through and then you can start taking on the cars because now the car isn't so central to their life. It's something that's like, wow, uh, I could just walk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's different for me being in a city. Yeah. Because, I mean, in Portland's like been pretty liberal for a long time. And it was all, like, there's it's one of the first places where you saw a lot of like hybrid and electric cars and stuff like that. Like, people have been trying. Yeah. People want cars. There's a lot of bikes here too. Mm hmm. But our transit sucks. So actually, when I think it makes more sense here to focus on transit. Yeah. And traffic is horrible. So like, right. <laughs> as the city grows, the traffic gets way, way, way worse. It's not that housing isn't a huge issue here. It is. But definitely, my local chapter focuses a lot on tenant rights and stuff like that, which is good. It's just like there isn't a lot of attention being paid to expanding transit. I think there should be. I don't yeah. know if like necessarily that's something for my chapter to take on. I'm actually not like super involved in my chapter, but um, uh, <laughs> definitely like locally, somebody should be on that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know, the thing the thing that always gets me about transit, it seems like the number one way to to <laughs> to increase ridership is to just make it fare free. Because like I mean I forget what city there's a city in Europe that made it fare free. And, it, like, ridership just increased by 50% in one year. Um, yeah. I think we have, they're called Ozone Action Days. And so every Ozone Action Day, um, the fare in our city is free. So they want you to ride the bus on Ozone Action Days, right? And I just, because our, our mayor signed on to the Paris Climate Accords, you know, in defiance of Trump and all that. And uh, I just want her to essentially declare a climate emergency and just i mean you can't like i get that a city has its limitations but just make fair free for ever now just 
it's a small it's a small price to pay for you know the climate um (laughs) and i'm just kind of i don't know there's so many things i feel like i see it's just trying to get i don't know it's it's weird because i on one level people are very scared by climate change and on the other level I don't feel like eco-socialists have really done a good job up to this point of contextualizing for people because they want to go after the big fossil fuel companies like right away, right? And I just, I, I like, I don't know. The, from where I sit, <laughs> if you just attack the big fossil fuel companies and try to go at it from like an energy direction, it just seems like you're not really giving people any reason to, to give a shit or to feel like they're problems with climate change are being ameliorated which is like like essentially we're organizing a tenants union to push for baseline demands but then to down the road push for renewable energy as one of those demands things like weatherizing the home insulation all that stuff all these things that like are on the agenda of the housing group that we're working with already but just from like an environmental perspective and not a climate change one. I don't know. It's just like reframing it in such a way that I don't know. People don't. People don't. I I I really hate the stories that are what like uh, the polar bears are dying out today. Or you know, I get why we have to tell them, but I don't think it does. Like there's, I don't know. It's... People can like go back that seems so far away, and like it, there's nothing they can do. What are they gonna do? Mm-hmm greenpeace like you know nobody (laughs) that's really what it feels like your options are i mean i remember for a long time like i felt like the only thing i could do was i was a vegan yeah and and uh you know the greenpeace people would approach me and i'd be like look i'm doing all i can yeah like like the net i thought like the only thing i could do more would be like joining greenpeace right right which isn't true like there's stuff that people can do locally a ton and like that starts people thinking i mean some of it is just <laughs> how do people radicalize right like right don't radicalize around the like the, the this like big other kind of like concept like there's some like unseen force doing something somewhere around the world that eventually is going to affect you like yeah you don't yeah i mean we've had this issue in michigan with um this company called enbridge they have it's called Line Five, and Line Five has run underneath the Mac, well, next to the Mackinac Bridge for longer than the Mackinac Bridge has been built, right? So, like, it's it's these pipelines are older, like, have never been reconstructed. They're older than the Mackinac Bridge, and next year will be the ten year anniversary of one of their other pipelines erupting in Marshall, Michigan, and it was like the largest inland oil spill in American history, just devastating. Like, people are still dying from cancers and all stuff all sorts of stuff like 10 years on right like just horrific and meanwhile there's been this pipeline up the line five up in the straits of Mackinac, and if it erupts right like then essentially like huron and lake michigan are fucked just just automatically because of the currents and all this stuff right and so the person there our governor now and our attorney general now ran a like essentially ran a campaign on promising liberal environmentalists what they wanted, which was to shut down just Line 5, not not get rid of Enbridge, not deal with anything else structurally, just get rid of this one pipeline. And it's now almost 
four months into her administration and they're just reviewing paperwork that the previous administration like shoved through like in the 11th hour of their administration so they're, they're not actually like going to shut down the pipeline right now they're just going to review whether or not it's legal to shut down the pipeline and it's just kind of like like <laughs> like the motherfucker used the bridge as her campaign logo right like she ran this whole campaign on infrastructure and ending line five and the merge of like labor and environmentalism and it just four months in and it's just like i don't know there's not my problem is is all the liberal environmentalists like greenpeace and all these other groups have had such a had such a lead on it that the discourse around what is possible is so horrifyingly like saturated with essentially people going yeah i mean we'll just vote and it's (laughs) Like, yeah. Oh. yeah or vote with your dollar vote yeah i love that one i remember hearing that for the first time from <laughs> an anarcho-capitalist <laughs> they said it was the truest oh, expression yeah. yeah the truest expression of democracy and uh ever since then every time people tell me to do that i just i hear it in the back of my head and it... the truest expression of democracy is yep. vote with your dollar mm-hmm. oh yeah is... Yeah, that's a lot of level right there. Truly. It just Ugh. swims around in my head. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we talk a little bit about... I definitely think I just had some weird shit with my mic, so... Oh. I don't want to... <laughs> no worries. Like, try to, like, start a conversation right now, just in case this is... <laughs> we have to start the episode. Yeah. So, should we talk about eco-socialism and having a, like, religious background? Yeah, yeah. Where do you, how do you want to approach that one is the thing. I can tell you about my upbringing. <laughs> yeah, I think it would make sense for you to kind of like briefly share your upbringing and then why you think it has impacted the way that you approach eco-socialism. Sure. Um, <laughs> so my family is really religious. Um, so obviously my name is Joel. My older brother is Joshua, and my younger brother is Josiah, and these are all Old Testament biblical names. Yeah. Um, Serendipitously, maybe. I don't know. I'm now friends with uh, Jeremiah, who's my co-host, and uh, Naum, and they're both Old Testament prophets. And I can't tell if this is a West Michigan thing, but like, I can't skip a stone without hitting someone <laughs> who doesn't have a biblical name. But my parents were like, they went out of their way. And they named us after these prophets for like or people for a specific reason, um, and Joel is the prophet of doom. <laughs> like oh, for, for yeah, he has the prophet. Prophet Joel has four pages in the Bible, and essentially he's telling the Israelites to repent, or God's going to uh, destroy them, which is a recurring theme. Yeah, it's weird. Um, he does things like. Uh, the classic tearing of the clothes, um, ashes on his face, all the whole nine yards just really goes for it. Um, which I feel like probably isn't a great thing to name a kid after and, and just kind of leave it there, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I was always a little off. I feel like, um, 
and it got me interested in it. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the other thing about so I grew up in a place called Fremont, which is an hour north of Grand Rapids, um, and Fremont is most famous for Gerber baby food because um, oh. that's where the plant is, right? But it is a it's got like three thousand people in the city limits. I mean, it's just it's just a hick ass town, right? Like it's just it is what it is. But my family's relationship to the church in it has been pretty profound going back like generations. So like one side of my family's line, well, like both sides of my family are pastors, right? It's like on both sides have always been, always will be. I spent most of my childhood in a church on Saturday, Sunday, or Wednesday, right? In some capacity. And they always pushed us to do things in the church, too. Um, God, Jesus. That's a story. I spent three days in a church, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you know it, it, it really wears on you. But the thing is, is that, like, around, I think it was around the third grade, I started to, like, actually read the damn book, and this caused conflict. <laughs> so... <laughs> There was a lot, I mean, before before 9-11, because everything after 9-11 became very, they were, like, they had started writing the Left Behind series in, like, early, in, like, late, in the late 90s, right? And it coincides with, like, the right-wing militia movements, and there's a lot to be said about that, because, like, I think, <laughs> I think most people's uh, exposure until this, I think most of our generation's exposure to right-wing militias honestly probably came from like the x-files honestly because mm-hmm. they deal with it more often than not uh, well not more often than not frequently um but like like that rhetoric and that language and idea and that ideology like is deeply saturated from where i came from so the idea that the world was ending was something that i just grew up with and then after 9 11 it just hit like a quickening um so like they'd already been writing left behind series, but they really picked up the tempo and they started making the movies and then they made um the kids versions. And then mm-hmm. um I remember having like a Bible as a kid that was it was grey and black. I actually saw it. I went back to my parents' house like last weekend and I saw it and I thought about like picking it up. Um but it's called like the Underground Church's Bible. And so it's like the New Testament but also Psalms and Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Um and it's all about like in the, in the end times if uh when the when the bible is banned this you can have you can like as if you couldn't hold on to any other bible this bible this it's how you know it's a grift this bible is going to be the thing to carry you through the end times um we had we used to play in youth group uh capture the flag but there was like this element of like um hiding from the government you know that was like there to to pick up the good Christians, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So that was the world I was born into, which left me very adrift, like um, in so many ways, <laughs> as my therapist will attest to. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But mostly, it left me with this profound sense that, well, first of all, I was pissed. I was pissed because in in the Christian apocalypse, you can't do anything. You can't even sacrifice something, right? Like, that God is dead and gone. He did did his best. He, like, 
create his own son to be his own sacrifice, which is fucked. But there's nothing you can do. So, I mean, you know, but for people who don't, uh, there's the story in the book of Revelations about the seven seals. And the seven seals, every time a seal gets opened, a new disaster happens, right? And so um, for a lot of my childhood, like, people started talking about climate change. And I kind of went back and forth between being told that this was just the end of the world because God was coming back and being told it was the end of the world because science, (laughs) right? And I'm just pinging back and forth between the two. And eventually I just kind of like give up on both because I was like, I was a teen. I didn't know what to do, right? Like I don't have agency anyways. Um, I had like a blissful year where I just didn't think about the world ending at all. And sometimes I wish I could go back to that year and just like savor it more, but here we are. Um, but the thing about like, and and maybe it has to do with being born the day after Christmas, and maybe it has to do like has something to do with sharing a birthday with my grandmother, and I don't know all the other things. But I was just like a really intense kid, and never stopped being intense about the end of the world because i always well, I felt mean, like capricorn like capricorns are yeah <laughs> astrology capricorns tend to be very intense as children truly and i have reservations about that wearing off so <laughs> i don't think it really has um which i you know on a certain level i don't really mind because i feel like a lot of people are coming to radicalism now and not I'm not gonna I'm not here to like shit on them, but they're they're just starting, right? But this is a world that I've been in for a while. Um yeah. and can I just want to avoid the, the liberal phase. Um so how does it relate to eco socialism? Um yeah, I mean being raised to believe it's the end of the world really changes your outlook and everything. <laughs> like it just does. Um I remember being very concerned that I was gonna die a virgin for some reason. Um which <laughs> I don't know if it was the thought of dying a virgin or dying alone that made me more scared. Um, and that is a whole nother conversation. But that I remember that being very prescient, prescient in my mind. Um, but everything kind of became like that, right? Like everything took on this whole, like, how far can I get before this thing bottoms out? Mm-hmm. Um, until... And uh, until high school. And in high school, I was introduced to Alex Jones. And this was way back. This was like, what, almost 10 years ago. Um, So, I mean, he'd already gone off the deep end a little because he's always been off the deep end. But this was before, like, the gay frogs and before all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the thing that was refreshing was that this was a person saying that you could actually do something but always saying it always framing it through a a right-wing paradigm right Mm -hmm. um but just the thought that you could actually change something like if you could just do something um but i was always disturbed by the like his imagination always like i mean first of all climate change to him is a hoax so there's that part but the way that he would talk about like society breaking down and needing guns and killing people who are trying to take your food always like just didn't it didn't make sense to me 
because I always wondered, like, why didn't you just, why don't you just work together? Like, why don't you just, like, you know, grow your own food? This, this to me seems counterproductive. Like, why would, like, but there's, I mean, in right-wing ideology, right? The desire to kill and purge and the cleansing of the blood, which is a very Christian belief. Um, to be mad max if things get bad yeah yeah very much very excited for that they are um i mean yeah things like oath keepers i remember when oath keepers started i remember like that like just the the fucked up thing is that on a certain level it makes sense right like they're talking essentially it's right-wing organizing right and not really knowing what the left was because we live in America. I mean, the only institutions of the left that remotely existed in my hometown were a farmer's co-op, which was mm-hmm. started in the 1930s. And, but you would never know. I mean, I never, I still don't know what farmers actually participate in that. So you're left assuming most of the farmers are right-wing. Um, and then both of my parents were union members, but most unions aren't the bastions of leftism that people want them to be. Which definitely showed. Um, but I don't know. All of those things kind of swirled together and uh, left me in just a weird state. And I left for college and just kind of had given up on all of it, which was kind of nice, mm-hmm. <laughs> frankly. Um, I started seeing someone and for the first time in my life, because most a lot of my life was driven by nihilistic impulses to just kill myself. Um, cause I didn't, I just wasn't, I couldn't cope with any of it. Like it just, yeah, <laughs> these are always the, uh, the things. Um, I probably, theater probably saved my life in high school, honestly, which was like a really, it was nice for a lot of reasons, right? Cause you saw collective action, you got to participate and you were all fucking strange. Like, like no one in, no one in theater is normal by any stretch of the I imagination. Socialists who were more or less radicalized through theater and learned a lot of the like organizing skills that they utilize now in theater. Yeah. It's a, it's a good place. I mean, it actually like in, during the new deal, they actually had a program, the public's work administration where it revolved around the theaters and they put on radical plays um, which was something I learned later, but like it all makes sense. Um, yeah. Anyways, yeah, I was in college and I started uh, seeing someone, and I got really into the idea of like living <laughs> for the first time, like not wanting to die, because um, I think that informed so much of the way I looked at all of what I had been given, right? Like, <laughs> I had three apocalypses to choose from. Like, the right-wing societal breakdown, Jesus, and climate change. And I just mm-hmm. wanted nothing to do with any of them. Um, but I, it wasn't until I started seeing someone seriously considering the thought of, like, what about life? What about all that? That I started to <laughs> come around. I started to, like... Um, I really started reaching for leftism, but I didn't know what it was at that time um, until I met someone at college who her, she's Bolivian. Her mom's indigenous Bolivian and her dad was from Grand Rapids. Um, And she, uh, she showed me 
the motorcycle diaries <laughs> oh yeah yeah and that movie because i like watching alex jones i knew who Che guevara was uh <laughs> but nothing about like what made this man tick so i really wanted to know like what what did it for this guy and then watching that film it was it was game over right like i didn't um I didn't go join a socialist club on on campus because I was still I was just still new to it all. But like suddenly the idea of like organizing society around mutual benefit for each other just I mean it made sense. Um, and then I had to contend with the fact that climate change was real, and then I had to cut through all of the liberal bullshit. So I spent a lot of time doing that, and a lot of time just feeling the things that I felt growing up, right? The, these kind of apocalyptic feelings that you have no agency, <laughs> like you're just kind of, you're just doomed. The carbon dioxide is going to keep increasing until it hits a quickening and then it's just going to go really fast downhill. And it's fucking annoying because the thing is, is that there's honestly so much that can be done as as long as it's not filtered through liberal NGOs and but like like we were talking about earlier they just control the the discourse around everything so much like it ser- it serves them well for the planet to die you know mm-hmm. cuz yeah. that's how they get <laughs> that's how they get fundraiser money that's how that's how they have their blue like what's the one here the blue water gala or the blue tie gala it's just like Ugh yeah (laughs) it's just like like i'd really like there might be good people in here but none of you are like really serious about stopping it and around that time i met radical environmentalists and i was introduced to like the earth liberation front and the animal liberation front and really sat with that one for a while um because it all makes sense why they would do it Mm-hmm. and not to uh i will not cede to the liberal environmentalists who say that it discredited the movement um because i think that in the violent expressions of elf you see an actually actually makes sense like this these things are killing the planet so just destroy them right it's it's a one to two logic um and it just made sense but it also felt like to do those things you have to risk a lot and most people for numbers whatever reasons can't or won't and so you have to like go back to where do you start um actually change like most people's minds yeah you have to actually like reach people on a level that they actually want to interact on uh and with and but the the main thing is you have to like remove that despair element before you can really get people to mobilize because if you're just like <laughs> i don't i mean it makes sense why people just ignore it you know like i mean most polls in the united states say what like 80% of americans believe in climate change so it's not even like a belief in it that's a problem it's just that like it's the, it's the same thing with like imperialism or any number any number of these issues right they're always like there's this place that we want to get to 
you know, a, a world free from war and climate change. And then there's where we're at. And we're literally just going to just take people's money and Yeah, hope. well, I think <laughs> behind the, the way that the right wing started to spin the shit around climate change, once they started to realize that you can't say it's fake, they started saying, well, it's not caused by men, meaning like, yeah. there's nothing we can do, right? Because we mm -hmm. didn't cause it, stop it. It's just the, the earth is just getting warmer, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. that's genius because people like believe that. And that's the, the the thing that's easier to believe anyway. And that's how I do think that's how people feel about war and imperialism too. Like, yeah, it's horrible, but like, how do we even stop that? You know? Yeah, you're people so feel lack of control. Yeah, and there's nothing. There's, I mean, okay. And I dunk on the left out of love, but the left hasn't really done a great job of explaining to people how they can relate to them, right? Mm -mm. Like. A, a really shitty job honestly <laughs> like because they say they want a revolution and then they just don't really get around to it somehow like yeah. i mean okay and, and people have their own opinions on noam chomsky but i always love it when people ask noam chomsky like what can we do what can we do and he's like well it's not a hard answer it's you just have to organize that's all that there ever was and he's like people in poorer countries have done it and are farther along than we are and uh, i mean it, it's not a question of resources it's not a question it's just just organizing and i think that like the left has spent the past 20 or 30 years just spinning in circles about like looking for the the one big thing the one this one trick um, and it's not coming, right? Like, there's no, there's no silver bullet. There's no, like, there's no savior coming to save us. Um, and I think that, like, to bring it back to the religious element, like, you have to, like, go past that, right? Like, you have to go past the despair. You have to go past the fact that, like, no one is coming to save us. You have to like burrow deep into like what makes all of this worth preserving in the first place. Um, and I think that transcends a liberal NGO's responsibility. And I think it crosses into territory that the left is very um, <laughs> leery of, of engaging with. Because now we're talking about things that aren't material, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Which actually... I think part of the explanation why it actually does work better a lot of the time in poorer countries, because one thing Sylvia Federici talks a lot about that I really respect is like, she studies these, the way that these movements come out of community and we don't have it in America, yeah. kind of in like a particularly stark way. Yeah. Um, everyone's extremely alienated in this place and we don't really know what it means to even work together. I mean, that's why you can see the left eating itself alive, you know, not to get <laughs> current or too deep into the like left drama, but like right. the ISO is currently dissolving. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like the reason for all of this, like we keep splitting, we keep not being able to get along, tearing each other apart instead of just figuring out how to grow up and work together. Like, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember like Cornell West was one of the first people that I heard about, like, contemporary people 
who was a leftist. Um, and I found out about the DSA years ago when he came to my campus and spoke. But I didn't join because, like, the DSA is like the Wobblies are, like, even though I'm a member. It's still, like, at that time, it was still, like, wrapped up in this, like, old... You just mm-hmm. kind of expected it to be a geriatric kind of meeting. Nothing against yeah. old people, but it just was, you know? But I remember, like, one of the things that he said that just, like, really, like, spoke to me was uh, justice is what love looks like in public. And, I like, I really, like, Cornell West, I think, is, without people like Cornell West, I don't think that the left will make it because, like, uh, Cornell West is a theologian. Well, he's not, he himself is not a theologian, but he's a Christian that comes out of the black tradition is the way he puts it, right? And he always talks about things like um, he had a friend, uh, James Cohn, who was an actual theologian. And James Cohn wrote about black theology. And he wrote this book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he talks about how both the cross and the lynching tree are inversions of power, right? Like, the Christianity itself, like, when it began took this symbol, this most horrific symbol of execution and mutilation and all that stuff, and made it the symbol of power, right? Like, that in that, like, the the willingness to die for, for something greater, the willingness to endure and suffer, like, all of those qualities were, like, the qualities of love, the qualities of, like, devotion, and that, like, this is best seen in the cross, right? And essentially, Cohn compares it to the lynching tree and how you get, in the 20s and 30s, the emergence of people like, uh, I'm blank on their names now, who sings Strange Fruit? Oh, oh no. Mm-hmm. This, like, the song Strange Fruit is essentially a hymnal from, like, the foot of the lynching tree, right? Like, the it's asking the same questions that like Cornel West says, um, the disciples asked on Saturday night, right? Halfway between like like before the resurrection, after the execution, and they're like they they really have to ask the question now, right? Was this Jesus guy all talk or is he really is he really coming back, right? Like these kinds of questions about despair and what comes next. Um and I, I think that like the problem with an existential crisis like climate change is that we're not engaging it in that way at all that we're just talking about it in scientific terms that we're or or material terms and those are good terms to talk about if we want to like design policy or if we want to like think about how to take concrete action um but we're not really pros we're not really grieving you know We're, we're not mourning like no everyone thinks they're doing it on their own because everyone is kind of feeling it yeah don't recognize it or they think they're the only one feeling that way yeah and we should be doing it collectively right absolutely like um (laughs) every every day that passes now right it's the last the cool the last of the coolest days on this planet you know for the foreseeable future right and um because i live like an hour away from lake michigan um, I always make it a point during the winters to go out and walk on the sand and ice dunes. And it's, they're really spectacular. Like, I, I love it so much. 
Um, but I keep thinking, I keep having this conversation with my co-host about how, like, because you can see the maps of, like, by the end of the century, the temperature range of Michigan will be, if we if we pull this off, like, it'll be, like, Missouri. And if we don't, it'll be at least, like, Texas, right? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, this whole, I mean, this whole winter wonderland thing, like, mm-hmm. all of all of that stuff will be gone. And there's got to be a way to mourn that right yeah but we we just don't and i think it just causes us such a detriment um because yeah i mean like <laughs> how like but it's not something that the left is really adept at you know and it's something that like it's not very adept at feeling anything honestly yeah it's it's very it has contorted itself into a place where it's like so stuck on materialism that it's it's really forgotten that human beings are more than material things right like (laughs) i don't think it's anti-materialist to consider like human material like i think that is materialist i think they're missing an entire like they're they're a oversimplifying what materialism means and b like being overly like analytic in a certain kind of mindset to like actually rule out aspects of humanity just because they haven't been scientifically understood by the mainstream yeah 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 i mean you always see it with like the the left bashing on organized religion um and i'm not here to defend organized religion but i will say this organized religion has mobilized people to do a lot i mean good and bad things i mean i think about i i interviewed someone who just turned a valve in uh, in Minnesota. There were four of them. And they all came out of the Catholic worker movement. Mm-hmm. And I just think about that. Or like the... The, the sanctuary movement? The sanctuary movement. The, uh, the plowshare movement, where you had people breaking into GE facilities and nailing, like banging nuclear warhead cones in and then pouring their blood all over things. Like, what... I mean, what makes people do that? Like... It's not some materialist analysis. Mm-hmm. They're con- they're condemning from like such a place. Um, I think the the left is afraid of it for because the, the people who say that they're called by a higher power or called by God to do these things that phrase just freaks them out because they hear the right wing say the same things and they're like but what makes us different right like how do you how do we know that that's the right god and not the left god you know oh, like yeah. or, or like especially like right now the whole group of people just like overexposed to isis and oh yeah kind of muslim extremism like even the left like can't help but be a little bit like wary of that kind of ideology right yeah like don't nobody wants to become that and like it, it's it's easy to to think that that's that that's something that makes you like dumb or like mm-hmm. make something that's important about reality like that it puts you because in some ways it can like oh yeah i grew up religious and so did you and mm-hmm. that's especially like something because it forms the way that you think yeah but to to be an adult and to like conscientiously take aspects of religion into the way that you see the world i don't think that that's the same thing yeah 
Like I separated myself completely from Christianity and have since I don't believe in any of it in any mm -hmm. kind of like, real way, but like I have taken concepts from Christianity and like actually implemented them back into my personal life and my organizing. Yeah, I mean the the Jesus in the the book of Matthew is is pretty pretty on point for most of the book. I mean I'll never forget. I mean, it was it was the book that radicalized me at a young age. I didn't know what it was radicalized me towards, but Jesus has the because okay, right? Like the whole premise of the Book of Revelations is it's the end of the world. We're gonna separate people. Some people get to go to hell, and some get to go to New Jerusalem. Like, um, but in the Book of Revelations, they don't actually talk about like the separating process because mm -hmm. they talk about that in the Book of Matthew. And in the Book of Matthew, it has the whole passage where Jesus is sitting on the throne right and he's like all these people it's the sheep and the goats right and everyone comes before him and the sheep come before him and he says um welcome you may enter into the, my kingdom you are worthy and the sheep cry back something like lord uh what did we do to deserve this and he said well when i was hungry you fed me when i was naked you clothed me when i was sick you 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 nourished me and when i was in prison you visited me and they said lord we didn't when when did we see you and he said when you did it to the least of you know to the least of these you did it unto me and then the goats come and they do this the same spiel they're like and well he's telling them that they they could go to hell and they're like lord why would why are you why are you forsaking us like didn't we do everything that you said and he said you didn't you never like cared for me right he goes through the same list and they're like well you know those people suck, right? Like, this whole idea is, like, because essentially he's talking about how the Old Testament can just be shoved under a rug because he's come to restore the relationship. And that the only thing that matters, right, isn't if it has nothing to do with your sexual orientation, it has nothing to do with, like, your lifestyle choices, insofar as as long as you do the four things that he mentions, then you get into, then, then you're good, right? Like, and I always think about that because that part is just like, so those are the things that leftists ascribe to do, right? Prison abolition, Medicare for all, <laughs> like these are like core tenements of Christian ideology, like real Christian ideology. And yet the left like doesn't see it as doing any sort of religious work. And I just wonder all the time, like, <laughs> there's got to be something, especially now, that calls us to do these things beyond, like, a rational approach to getting nice bumps in material conditions, right? Like, at least, like, and I'm not saying that we should revive, like, the old uh, symbolism of <laughs> of communism, you know, from a hundred years ago, but there was something about like the dawning of the new day, the the beginning of the new age. This there was this vision, right? There was a vision of like a glorious future, one in which you know everything was good, and it wasn't about policy. You know, it wasn't it wasn't these fractured things. I mean, in practice, it was, but there was this cohesive vision of what society looks like, right? And we just don't do that anymore. We just and it, like it helped to fill the religious void i think in a lot of ways because it gave people something to fucking die for which is like a really bleak way of putting it but like 
at the same time, I mean, people on the left are already dying. And if yeah. not in America, around the world, right? And have been dying. Like, it's not, it's not a small thing to consider, especially, like, looking at the 60s in this country, right? Like, so, I mean... Right couple of years yeah yeah absolutely like i forget who describes it this way but that we're in like a low-grade civil war already um mm -hmm. and i think about that a lot because like you do kind of see those outlines um well, and there's already fascists that come into portland but patrol around looking for people to beat up like yeah particularly attacking lgbt people right now they're like making the, these this little round in town yeah. trying to come, up, come in regularly just to start a fight it's common like it's, a, right. it's actually really common in portland there is there is already some, a certain kind of civil war going on here yeah and it's highlighted in these places like certainly comes out more in certain spots right there's a reason for that yeah yeah and i think it's because they know what they want to die for on a certain level right like Fascists, like, have a vision of society, and it's it's horrible, but they have a cohesive vision of society, and they're willing to kill and die for it, essentially, mm -hmm. is what it boils down to. And the left just, you know, it's still... I mean, this is the, this is the thing that gets me, is that, like... <laughs> Since I'm editing the, the eco-socialist issue of Build... Um, someone wants to write an article about how eco-socialism is essentially like a new formation of life. Like it's not just, it's not just getting the green new deal passed. Right. And I've been thinking, I've been sitting with it a lot because I really like the idea. Um, but what does that call us to do then? Right. To be like eco-socialists in a time of environmental degradation and, and loss and things like that. Like, and, um, I find myself returning to to aspects of Christianity, like especially like the early church and like their communal living styles, like all of that stuff. And um, it makes me want to do everything all at once and yeah. just commit myself to it because... I think I think that there's this idea in America that if we don't have a certain amount of money, we won't be able to do this. Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, what is it? Uh, socialist cash beats capitalist trash. I just like, I just don't jive with it. I don't think that that's true. Because um, at the end of the day, it's never going to be socialist cash at any rate. Um, Bananas, like. <laughs> realize what our enemies are right yeah <laughs> it makes... literally the one percent like yeah <laughs> like the actual uh financial industry right like that's who that's who's really baying for our blood that's a little bit better <laughs> um but yeah i think the thing that i've had to in the in the past few years the thing that i've been wrestling with the most and it's been <laughs> made easier by <laughs> going to college for a dying profession. Um, definitely, <laughs> I went to school for journalism, and uh, they're not hiring them anymore. <laughs> so, 
it's kind of it made it forced my hand in a way and at first i didn't think i was okay with it and then i realized that i didn't really want to go anywhere else because i didn't really want to like well first of all where would i go <laughs> and second of all all the people that i love and care about are here more or less yeah. and it felt I didn't want to leave them, regardless of the climate changing, right? But especially with that component, it felt weird to leave. Because if I have all of this information and understanding and all of that, then why not just use it in a place that I know, like the back of my hand, right. with people I know, like the back of my hand, you know, like... I think that there's there's got to be, and I this is just me growing up in a rural place, and I mean Grand Rapids is <laughs> is a cute little city. It's nothing big, um, so I don't know what to tell people in big cities. But what I can say about places like Michigan is that like there's really no reason to leave, because otherwise you just let the you just let the fascist win by default, right? You just let them have it. Like I don't. I don't see any point in congregating any further in a larger city to try to change the climate when so much of climate change is going to be like so much is so much of it's going to be restoration of yeah the ecosystem. And I also I, think build, building some sense of like what what it means to think of humanity as this kind of we and like work mm -hmm. as a collective and build some sense of community so that we are like taking action on our own behalf. I think that has to start small. If you start somewhere where you already have a community, it yeah. makes more sense to build that <laughs> instead of trying to start fresh. Yeah. Every time. I'm not saying that like nobody should move. Right. <laughs> you, should, you should move. I'm yeah. a big fan of getting the fuck out if you need to. But like, if you don't have that, then don't like fall for that bullshit of like you have to be in the big city to be able to do anything. Yeah. But, I think. Um... There's a book that I've been itching to read. It, it's on collective joy. And I, I forget who wrote it. Um, I have been meaning to read it. Because I think the, the thing that really turned the tide for me, the thing that like helped to tie all of this together was going to a bluegrass camp, for lack of a better word. They call it a festival, but essentially everyone there is a musician or a dancer or an artist of some kind. So it's it's not like going to like a like a festival where it's performers and an audience, right? It's it <laughs> in a weird way, right? It's very um, it's very democratic in a in a in a weird way because everyone is a participant in the project, and mm -hmm. the project is the camp. Um, I remember like going to it because my friend had wanted to take me there forever because um, it's like an hour and a half north of here so um and he had gone to it all his life um but my parents didn't want me to go uh because that's where hippies went to do drugs which they're not wrong <laughs> but but i'm down so i remember like going there and seeing like what i don't know there was something in it this idea that like we all work together to make this endeavor, this creative mm -hmm. 
joy, this communal joy, this like, I mean, no one, no one will go hungry there, right? No one, no one worries about, you know, like everyone is taken care of. Um, it's, it's very, I mean, it, it started off as a music co-op, like the, the values are deeply embedded into it, but it's, it's so interesting to see it because more than any leftist organization going to a bluegrass like camp was the most lefty thing I'd ever participated in because it really got around to answering the question, like, what does it look like? Um, instead of these like theoretical terms. Um, and it's got me thinking a lot about <laughs> a lot about it all again, because if we want to like fight for something, um, <laughs> I think that like that kind of community, like you said, I mean, like having a community that actually functions and has a project. I mean, the thing about like, and it won't be like this for much longer, but like having four seasons is that each season dictates how you relate to it. And that's kind of the point of these festivals, right? Like they happen at the beginning of summer and at the end of summer, right? They're the, they're the spring and fall harvest festivals. They're, they serve a function, just like an agrarian school calendar, just like all these things that are like residue of the time when we were more of an agricultural society. Um, but it, the thing I always appreciate about those things is its reverence for nature. Like, mm -hmm. When winter comes, you're supposed to just stay the fuck inside. Just like, just stay yeah. inside and don't yeah. don't do shit. Getting up at six thirty in the morning to get to work by eight in the middle of winter is like the worst torture. Oh yeah. And every, I mean, I don't I don't have to get up that early anymore. Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, I still do. It's it's truly torture though. Back in the day, like it, it's like that's when like capitalism. You're like, oh, this is wrong. Yeah. Like when you can feel it in your body. Yeah. You know? I, I read this book. I don't know if you've read Caliban and the Witch. No. Hugely influential for me. Yeah. I highly recommend it to anyone listening. It's <laughs> it's about the transition from feudalism to capitalism, mm. specifically from um, the perspective of women and like surround like surrounding this question of the witch hunts in Europe. Oh, okay. Um, and it, it's brilliant. And one of the things that she talks about quite a lot is like what it actually took to change society so that people functioned on a, like an alarm clock. Kind of oh, yeah. Because that's never been how people have been. And even in feudalism, you know, like peasants had to like uh, and serfs, like they had to like accomplish a certain amount of work, but like they still scheduled themselves, you know? Yeah. <laughs> still like centered around the land and around seasons and all of these things and they could function with their bodies in this way that was more natural yeah and just the, the the actual profound level of alienation we have from our bodies and from the planet under capitalism is i think part of why it's so hard for people to like figure out why they're feeling weird or why yeah. they're feeling, like despair and why like why this is upsetting the way it is Mm -hmm. like the, like climate change we're part of we're part of the earth right like there's a reason that we can feel this in every cell in our body and why people are having weird spiritual reactions and things that they can't really explain mm -hmm. in my opinion. yeah i mean 
There was the uh, the the scientist that uh, wimolated himself about a year ago, and they said that he they diagnosed him as having eco anxiety, which was just like one of those moments where you're like, I get it, I get I get why you made the term, but like <laughs> the man isn't. It's not an eco problem. It's just a natural response to what you're being confronted with. Yeah. I mean, because yeah, I mean like. You're right. I mean, this is the this is the frustrating part. Like, we're so fucking like on one about the Cartesian model and the separation of the, the body from the mind, and it's just like, oh, it drives me nuts. Because I mean, like I that. Mean, she, she up Descartes, like in that book, because oh, yeah. <laughs> his ideology was going on. He, he was developing his ideology at the same time that the witch hunts were happening. Like, it was, mm-hmm. impo- it was an important therapy tool to like separate you from your body interesting yeah interesting yeah but i mean it's 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 so bizarre how it like um it carries over to everything right like it's it's just such a pernicious ideology um i mean yeah it's everywhere it's everywhere and i don't think that people really grasp it fully and i also don't the thing i'm always leery about is telling people to go read more about this stuff because mm-hmm. it's just kind of like, if you know it, if you can feel it, then you probably know enough, right? Like, I mean, there... I think you should talk about it. Like, yeah. talk to people, talk, ask people who have read stuff questions. Like, I think it's more important to me, like, what comes out of a conversation about these things. And most people come to this stuff on their own. Yeah. If you want to know more history, there is reading. Like, yeah. if you want that. But, like, really just, like, just just talk to your friends about it. Talk yeah. to people your parents <laughs> Seriously. my mom is radicalizing around this like, <laughs> really i'm dead serious <laughs> i mean it's interesting to see what it's interesting to see how people respond to it you know i <laughs> i i think that's part of the reason that i'm so sick of people assuming how people are going to respond to it they're like oh um oh they're right wingers so they're not gonna they're not going to take this well. I mean, like, they won't. But, like, I remember, because it's, like, rural, like people in rural places already understand it and understand it in a way that, like, people from urban centers will never, like, minutely understand it. Like, the sound of spring getting quieter is truly eerie. It's just truly, like, you know something's wrong. Um, but you can see the inability to change it at like at the most basic level right like the the farmer is unable to change their relationship with the land because of capitalism and it's the most fundamental part of capitalism right the enclosure and all that stuff and i just i keep coming back to it because i keep thinking about like i mean it's a it's a massive problem so where do you start i think that people have this idea that there are there's a priority list and that if we just organize around the priorities that that will accomplish the, the thing which is why mm-hmm. i think people gravitate towards transit um and i think that before like before any of that can happen you have you have to mourn like you have to get into the weeds with this stuff because otherwise it's you're not going to whatever you want to call it, like have the philosophical undergirding or the spiritual fortitude to handle it, right? Yeah. Like, how do you process that 
all the work that you might do might be for nothing, right? And I don't think that people who were raised in sane homes really are familiar with it because it's not like the apocalypse itself is not really, um, it's not a sane expression. It's not a sane thing. Like, yeah, I, I would be curious. I mean, I'm, I, I'm curious because people like Ilhan Omar seem to kind of get it in a way that I don't think most American politicians ever will because she lived through a lot of shit, right? And so I think that there's this kind of, it's the same kind of thing where if you kind of, and I'm not, like, I'm not saying run out and traumatize yourself, but if you like live through a severe trauma and more or less processed it, you mm-hmm. can actually kind of process your way through climate change better than I, I think, think so. more people can. I mean, it forces you to open yourself, right? I'm, you don't have to go through trauma in order to open. Right. But like people, it, people who have been forced to be open have like, have gone through that. It, it does, it does feel different to tear yourself back open than it does to tear yourself open for the first time. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the reasons that I think that people like you and like, and like me who um, have had that experience since we were really young and like kind of know how to mourn um can be it's important that we're people like us start talking about very specifically this like not just that we organize but very specifically that we talk about this feeling and what it means and like makes help make space for people who are new to this concept like and new to this feeling new to what it feels like it's one of the things that we can do and this is something I, i say to other friends of mine who are leftists and ex-religious because there aren't tons of us yeah <laughs> um, it's really like one of our jobs that things one of the things we can be important for is honestly like emotional labor like yeah make making spiritual and emotional space for people and helping guide people through that process helping them know what it what like helping them know that a they're not alone yeah and like that it's that it's that it's part of the process for them to have like feel like their heart's breaking yeah yeah i mean (laughs) as a kid my family is pretty old so i went to uh more funerals than weddings growing up um so i got very comfortable in a a cemetery um and you know i think there's something about this idea uh about like what you leave behind in this in this world and like what what does it look like right like well i guess before before i get into that uh to your point about the being torn open and being torn open again um one of the things that uh, cornell west always returns to is this idea nietzsche wrote about it and i'm not a big fan of nietzsche but i do like this idea he calls them the burned orphans of the world and he says that the the burned orphans of the world are those who have gone into somehow like the the swirling vortex of reality itself and Mm -hmm. stayed so long that they've become burned and but when they walk out of that place they understand and can handle it more you know like and yeah i mean that part i remember reading that part 
and just feeling something that I hadn't felt before because it felt like all of the pain. I mean, like I have visceral memories and nightmares about some of the religious apocalyptic imagery that I was subjected to, um, both by the environment and by my family. And it is satisfying to know on one level that that wasn't all just for nothing, you know, like, yeah. like what you're saying, like that we can have these conversations and start to map out a way through this, um, for people who are coming to it for the first time. I think that it's relieving, honestly. Um, cause when, when you start to like have to wrestle with the question of like the end of all of it, like it's not pretty and it's i mean it's and it's also not i keep trying to like uh differentiate this between like a nuclear apocalypse mm -hmm. and like the one thing i always think about the nuclear apocalypse is that there is something that in america it was made to be a sexy death almost that the idea of like being vaporized in the first go at it like that was what was desired right so you because you knew what came after right the slow agonizing radiation and the burns and seeing people and seeing the shadows and like the, the shit the act like what most people experience right and you wanted to be taken up in that that bomb in that in that flash just like people want to be taken up with by the rapture it's the yeah. same it's the same uplifting you don't have to experience pain like the death isn't there you there's no grieving on your end and the, the the thing about climate change is that you don't get that there isn't going to be it's not like uh what was it the day after tomorrow right like we're gonna have like a slow unraveling of climate events but we're People not gonna losing have losing their land losing each other like floods and everything just getting more miserable yeah it's it's the epitome of a slow painful death and it's not even just ours it's everything like, yeah Exactly. And that is a different kind, like, you have to grieve and move simultaneously. And every new day, like, every day that, like, someone drops a new horror on your doorstep, you have to process that while processing, like, the overarching shit yeah. before you even get out of bed, you know? Like... This is where we can really learn from people who understand survival. Yeah. Like, just something that like you can see if you know it you know it everywhere you see it mm -hmm. i wrote i write about this a lot in my poetry like that you can just there's something so important about these like really subtle ways that people manage to keep moving when things are bad it's yeah. the thing that me like i have a lot of empathy for um like white guys that go all like start to get kind of fashy or incelly or whatever like yeah. i I actually understand like what's going on in their hearts and why they get there mm -hmm. and so I have some empathy at the same time as I think they all deserve to be smacked but <laughs> um I the thing that gives me that makes me so impatient with people like that is this um just like it's like look people throughout all of history and all of time and all over the world know how to survive and you don't yeah like get your shit together a little yeah. bit right? <laughs> and that's true kind of more broadly just of americans yeah um, at least like a certain layer of americans yeah 
Um, one of the things I really liked about this is t- sort of a tangent. One of the things I liked about Sorry to Bother You mm-hmm. was the way that it pulls out a certain kind of um, survival that exists in um, black, the Black American like culture. Yeah. When when they're they have the uh, windshield wipers kind of Jerry rig. Oh yeah. Yep. And they're like laughing and singing and like aha this car is gonna break down any second. Yeah. <laughs> actually, what it means for that car to be so ruined could be like the difference between being like like barely skating by and then like being homeless or being in that fucking factory where like they're one of the fact you know like yeah. one of the factories and like it's like it's actually like apocalyptic on a personal level mm-hmm. if that car breaks down yeah and, like that that and like laughing and like making that okay that is what we all need to learn how to do yeah i've been i mean and that's that's what like that's what cornell west and people like him and i mean there's more than just him but those people that like delve into that despair and like you're like you said like pull out the laughter um like i always like the uh some of the medieval art around the plague where they're like they're having a good time with death like Mm -hmm. there's this whole i mean like i mean that's where like uh the day of the dead come kind of comes out of right it's this idea that like um I mean, death isn't something to be feared. Death is something that we will all experience at some point. So why not just break bread with death and have a good laugh at it? And I think that there's something... I mean, uh, Protestantism is to blame for a lot of it, like the inability to do that. Because it, it just says that death is out there in the woods and there's a lot to be said about why it's in the woods. But it's out there in the woods and we are going to huddle together and stay away from the devil and you know like there's and in reality like you think about it and it's just like i've been reading a lot about indigenous uh people and like really getting into indigenous everything because i'm I'm really curious because where i grew up um <laughs> i grew up in a place called nuevo county and nuevo was the chief in that area mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, Michigan is a perversion of Michigame, which is the Anishinaabe word for it. Right. There's like, I mean, Michigan just can't escape it. I mean, none of this land can, but like. Oregon can't either. It's the same. Yeah. I also live in Oklahoma County, which is the name of the chief. Yep. Chief Mul- uh, whatever. I can't remember the name of the tribe that was there. Yeah. But like, you start to like really bore down into it. And it's just like, there is a resilience there. And thing like healing through intergenerational trauma there's all these things that in the very near future we are all going to have to be familiar with Mm -hmm. that they have been dealing with for 500 years right um and i just (laughs) i mean and and not to like get too far too off but i was watching I, i was i was watching this film about why why did Europeans need to leave? Like, why did they leave Europe and go searching? And it has, it is because they essentially destroyed their river system. Like, they made their rivers so muddy that they couldn't fish out of them anymore. And so they, they couldn't feed themselves anymore. So they needed to find somewhere to put all the poor people, right? Like, from the beginning, this... I mean, before Descartes, right? Like it, this idea that mankind, like the human human beings, are separate from nature, has p- 
plagued European civilization and Western civilization that it is the reason that it all began, right? <laughs> like, and you can you can take a line from the destruction of the rivers in Europe to climate change, and it's just one straight, it's just one straight line. And I keep thinking yeah. about that because, like. Like, like I told you, um, I am really curious about, uh, about the witchy side of myself, but because, um, before, and, and people can see this in Ireland, Ireland is like the model for, for settler colonialism from a European perspective, right? And I think it's really crucial to like understand Irish history and what really the history of the, the UK. So my family is mostly Scottish. Like it just Campbell means crooked mouth in Gaelic, which is another thing. But um, the interesting thing about Scotland, Wales and Ireland is that they were all colonized, right? Yeah. Because my ancestors used to run around painting themselves blue and scaring the Romans so much that they built Hadrian's wall, right? And they worshipped in bogs, and they, I mean, there were Druids and Celts. And, like, had this deep, rich history that was, they, they were one with nature, right? I mean, like, <laughs> so, I mean, like, the church is really at the center of it all, right? Like, the church is essentially the colonizing force in right. almost all these situations. Because whether you're talking about Presbyterianism in Scotland, which then became... Right, like the the people, the colonized Scots became the colonizers of Northern Ireland. So I mean, that's why it's Protestant, and that's why, like, um, yeah. I mean, essentially, they're they're displayed, they're colonized Scots, and that's where, like, in America, we get Scotch Irish. Like, they're mm -hmm. talking about the Northern Irish people, who are doing the colon the colonizing work in America. Which is why it's like such a big thing in American history, like Andrew Jackson, even Donald Trump, right? The Scottish history, the Irish, the Scott Irish thing. Um, because really what it says is that this is the most internally colonized person possible. Like they are so good at subjugating their own relationship that they can do it to someone else and brutally so. Because yeah. all throughout Europe, you have the same, you have like, the Basque country, you have Ireland, you have the Sami in the Arctic Circle, you have indigenous people in Europe, but it's it's like this weird, um, almost illusion, right? Because like, the people in France who are indigenous to France are, like all the French people are essentially indigenous to France, right? right. But the thing that separates the indigenous French people from French, like the French that we know is essentially its relationship through the church, like this internal colonization. And I keep mm -hmm. thinking about this part because like to me in a lot of ways, like we have to like kind of like decolonize ourselves, not in like internally as well as externally. Right. Like, mm -hmm. but that that process means returning to european heritage pre-christianity because in it you can see the relationship with nature that i think we have got to redevelop 
to make it through the stuff. Um, yeah. No, you mean like for for white and white yeah, yeah. people to like. Yeah, that makes actually a lot of sense. Um, like I, my my mom's side is also Scottish. Yeah. Um, amongst other things, like <laughs> Scottish is the one that we know because my great grandma came through Ellis Island. Mm. Um, and like I've also all always connected very very deeply with the Irish mm. since I was very young, and I think that's for good reason yeah. because of the Armenian side, which is the other side. Right. And you know when we do the episode on your podcast, yeah, <laughs> um, we we can talk more about that. I think, but like, um, I like definitely connecting to your roots as a white person, like, because because one of the things that makes it so difficult, I think, for white Americans is actually like a lack of identity yes. in a world that makes identity everything. And I'm not talking about identity politics either. Yeah. Uh, talking about, I mean, identity politics is a is is a, a response that makes sense, but is also like complicated in in response to the way that the world makes things matter that shouldn't matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But like, there ha there has to be a place for it on some level, and it also like gets corrupted by the way that the system itself understands identity. Mm -hmm. Um. But so it's not just because of that, but also like just because of the world that we live in, whiteness is the thing that is neutral, that doesn't mean anything. Yes. And especially as an American. Mm -hmm. And so what like that I think there's a reason that like white Americans often latch on to like proud to be an American, because like what else is there? Yeah. There isn't anything else. And if you can like recognize that there there can be and that there actually is something like beautiful and natural and like a lot closer to what we see in oppressed groups in in our history yeah. on on this on this like european side then that like that makes a big difference yeah <laughs> i mean and, and part of the reason that even like whiteness like the whole idea of like the melting pot um came around during world war one because they needed a way to assimilate especially like german americans they needed mm -hmm. them to drop the german part because they yeah. needed them, because especially with the influx of immigrants in the early, in the late 1800s, um, now you only had like a generation or two separating a lot of these Europeans from the people that they needed to go kill in World War One, right? So you had to like incorporate all these previously hyphenated white people into the yeah. white project, right? Um, I mean, like, <laughs> it's really bizarre, but also it makes all of it make more sense because mm -hmm. if you are alienated from your history as well as a white person and like you said the only thing that you can lash on to is this american identity it actually like sharpens your like desire to oppress like the indigenous people black people everything because this is the so only american thing being an empire right it's... yeah it's really like not much else to latch on to that in like that being being identifying with being American. I'm not saying there's nothing in there because you can say identify with democracy or like the enlightenment ideals or something. There's like things you can say that are not like <laughs> themselves automatically negative. Yeah. But if you identify with the current American state, you're pretty much just like immediately talking about empire. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, 
it all seems so disparate. Like these things like identity and history and climate change. Um, because we're not really taught to think that things are related to each other. I mean, this is part of like the industrial revolution. This is part of like this idea that like certain like certain practices and certain ways of being are separate from others, right? Like, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Can't think of it right now. Um, this like Euclidean geometry way of looking at the world, right? Like this that the Cartesian model was later based off of this idea, of, like. Um, that anything is separate from everything else. I, like, it's such a bizarre... It's so alienating, because then you just, like, start ripping apart everything. All the things that could overlay and create new ideas and ways of being, like, they're just gone. They're just siloed off. Um, and I think that, like, as... even Even now, right, before we've really, like, taken the plunge with climate change, as we start to reimagine, like, the ways of being and if we think of eco-socialism as a way of being rather than just a certain set of politics or a certain set of policies and i think we're going to like have to essentially smash all the silos because we're going to need everything to cope with it i mean from music and literature all the way to spirituality to just concrete action and i i'm curious like what that will look like and what um i mean that's that's why i'm so in it with the eco-socialist working group here it's just because we're having these kinds of conversations now because they kind of have to happen because i think otherwise you're just stuck with the dying polar bears and that's just depressing and there's nowhere to go with it nowhere to go yeah um, do you think that maybe it makes sense for us to kind of wrap up and then um, yeah. <laughs> for the listeners, maybe um, a little teaser here, like we, you and me can move on to recording the episode that goes on to your podcast, The Robin, yeah. and, um, <laughs> and check out the rest of it on that podcast. <laughs> um, I feel like like we kind of did the full, full circle and I think maybe it would be a good time for you to um, plug anything that you want to plug. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the only thing to plug would be, uh, would be the website, which is michiganrobin.com. Um, and then, yeah, the, the upcoming eco-socialist build issue that I'm editing, but that's going to come out May 15th. So mm -hmm. those are the two things. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your eyes open for <laughs> follow on twitter or your podcast on twitter oh yeah oh those things um place to where to get the build yeah edition. well definitely follow build on twitter i can't think of their handle right now um the 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 handle for the podcast is mish robin um and then if if anyone is inclined to follow me um my handle is in the description <laughs> but yeah um there's a Patreon. It is what it is. I'm not too concerned about making money off this. It's, um, it just is there. <laughs> but as a uh, fellow podcaster, I will say the more that you're able to support people who do this kind of work, the easier it makes it for all of us to do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> we can afford the kind of equipment we need. We can 
maybe even work less at a regular job and be able to focus more time on this. So if you are able to definitely support uh, the Robin on Patreon and follow me on Twitter at Comic Wisdom. Um, I also have a separate Twitter account for the podcast called at um, Dirty Pinko. And uh, I'm going to add the poetry segment um, at the end for this one. I normally do it in the middle, but I'm going to add it at the end so I don't break up the flow of the conversation. <laughs> um, once I, so stay tuned after I say this is over. <laughs> um, and thanks for listening. For the poetry segment for this episode, I chose one that I am publishing in my third poetry book called War Dreams. This, this poem was actually written for um, Andrew Hosier Byrne, commonly known by his stage name Hosier. I'm a giant fangirl, and I admit that wholeheartedly because he's fucking brilliant. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with his music, I highly recommend checking it out. He's Irish, and um, it comes through a lot in his music. Um, you kind of know what to look for. And one of the things I've always connected to in the Irish is this feeling that they're uh, people who understand the earth and um, have a, a certain kind of connection to the earth and to death and to apocalypse, um, um, much as Joel and I just talked about in this episode. So I wanted to share this poem because I thought that it sort of resonates with that kind of feeling. It's called I Can Hear Whispers Spoken in Mud Song. There are people who understand dirt, digging, mud, and peat, who are born with it under their fingernails, feel cold always in their toes, have dreams of burrowing and burial, look at their skin and see, to dust you shall return. Those who grind us down under their boots forget that from soil comes fresh growth. They forget that potatoes and turnips can withstand the winter. They forget the way the earth yawns and reclaims even tanks and palaces. I hear voices in my head, songs and pleadings of the dirt and all its inhabitants, words from graves and gardens, rocks and fields, begging to be spoken while I still have my head above the ground. There is something dishonest about pavement. Easing the way for what, for whom? I know you. The way of eyelids syrup-heavy with old sadness. The way of laughing that comes from the spleen or the kidneys and the metaphors you shyly reveal under cover of a voice made of copper and mahogany. We've never spoken, but I have seen in you potatoes, nutrients from rich soil, the deep sorrow that follows anyone who has looked life dead in the eye and dared to feel their bones. Music and poetry, as who we are, true like the green sprouts of an onion, incomplete like a lifetime only as long as winter. I want to take some time to also uh, thank all of my patrons on Patreon who have subscribed at $5 or more. Um, one of the perks of their membership is that they get to be mentioned um, by name on every episode. So I have uh, Becca Edwards, Dead Wolf, James Mullen, Joel Campbell. Um, thank you so much for all of your support. Everything you do is just, it makes my life so much better being able to do this show and actually like have a little bit of an income from it. It helps me spend less time at my day job, more time working on this. Um, so thank you for everything. Thank you.